0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the history and present of the interconnected movements to privatize education and dismantle democracy. Clips today are from Have You Heard?, Teach Me Teacher?, The New Abnormal?, WBUR?, The Human Restoration Project?, Is This Democracy?, Counterspin?, and a TEDx Talk by Dr. Ricardo Rosa. With an additional members-only clip... From Vice News.
1: From Reconstruction, where uh, y- y- you had people saying, let's have poor people and rural people only do vocational education, up through um, the 20s to 30s, where there were uh, these Rosenwald schools, which um, you know, there's a whole story about how people sing the praises of how much Rosenwald did, and and those schools were a godsend. Um, but it's really the, the burden for financing them and building them and putting the curriculum together was on these poor communities who had to give every single cent that they had to get some kind of of education um, through the 1950s, where where Brown v. Board. I mean, the country put uh, the the former slaveholding states. Put so much effort and money and and um, time and creative thinking into figuring out how not to integrate schools, how to how to uh, they would close entire school districts um, instead of of. Uh, thinking about how to, how to integrate up through the seventies, um, where, you know, we all know about the, the struggles that the countries had with busing, which fundamentally was about, we do not want our schools educate, uh, integrated. Um, and you had people like Joe Biden and others who would, going so far as to say, we will, we will, you know, forbid Any school districts who want to integrate their schools from using federal funds to put gasoline in buses in order to achieve that. Um, Like, really, if if we had put all of that energy and time into the one thing that we know works, where would we be um, as a country as opposed to, you know, continually seeming to fight these same battles about how do we educate poor people in this nation? Rooks
2: also noticed another remarkably consistent phenomenon across the decades. Wherever Black communities were pushing for access to education, white philanthropists and business groups were right there too. And their interest, well, let's just say that it wasn't always selfless.
1: When I wrote this book, is the the thing I I, I often tell people, I kept backing up just a little bit to figure out um, when there was a period where all of this wasn't intertwined, well-meaning, White people, philanthropists, black communities, education, like when they weren't so tightly intertwined. And I kept backing up, backing up, backing up and going, well, maybe it's the 80s. Maybe it's the 70s. Let's look at the 60s. And I literally backed all the way up to uh, to reconstruction, to the 19th century, to the beginning of taxpayers supported um compulsory education. So even at the the sort of beginning of public education, you had the same constituencies. You had uh, struggling black communities and poor white communities. You had wealthy philanthropists who was going to actually benefit them to do some things. And you had business folks who needed workers and wanted to increase their bottom line.
2: It wasn't just the intertwining of philanthropy and business that Rooks recognized in this history. Again and again, there was the search for experimental forms of education that always ended up putting the burden back on the same communities that were denied education in the first place.
1: People even then came up with these experimental um, forms of education that still managed to put the burden on the, the working class communities, on the people who had been denied education um, Because they were coming up with these idiosyncratic forms of education. So so at that time, what they decided is all these different groups from the philanthropists to the business leaders... Um, To the state legislatures, you know, they all decided that the best thing was going to be if they could take the money um, that was allocated for the education of the newly free black people um, and the South being the South and the South trying to reinstitute Jim Crow, or reinstitute white supremacy. The the idea that the the whole region of the country was really organized along the idea of black, black inferiority and white supremacy. Um, supremacy. So you had the legislatures all trying to figure out how to not have to pay for Black students to be educated and to put that burden solely on Black communities. Then you had businesses who You know, wanted to have workers, so they were supportive of certain forms of education. So they believed in vocational education, and they said, "Okay, we'll get behind efforts to educate uh, poor black people and poor white people if it's going to benefit our business interests." So vocational education—how to make people uh, make bricks, or be servants, or um, be nurses, like different kinds of services—and that could aid in business.
2: Do actual education historians know this history?
3: Because American education is decentralized, uh, there couldn't really be robust federal involvement in terms of creating uh, more equitable education for African Americans. Uh, It was power largely devolved to states and local government, uh, which engaged in highly varying practices. Uh, Philanthropists, many times with good intentions, uh, but acting out of a very particular worldview, uh, which often uh, was divorced from any real experience in the communities that they sought to help, um, brought A set of troubling assumptions and beliefs with them in their work. Um, And then the private sector, uh, you know, of course, has always been motivated primarily by the pursuit of profit, which brings its own set of complications. Um, I think worth noting here is the fact that. Communities have always sought to promote education for themselves, and this was no less true in African-American communities. Um, And there's a a good body of research that illustrates just how successful uh, some of those communities were at promoting really fantastic schools with extremely limited resources. And what they wanted primarily was uh, equality of resources so that they could continue doing for themselves what they were already trying to do. Um, That, unfortunately, has rarely been the case. We have rarely seen uh, governmental, non-governmental, private sector actors empowering uh, people at the grassroots level to take action uh, on their own parts uh, to help themselves. Um, And so, you know, I I would just add that, that, you know, there's an interesting uh, historical absence there, which we have never really seen. Um, But beyond that, uh, you know, even to, Today, we still see um, these three sectors, the governmental sector, the non-governmental sector, and the private sector, acting uh, in you know, fairly expected ways in public education. Uh, and, and in many cases, not entirely different ways than we might have seen 50, 100, 150 years ago.
4: It is the case that if you, if you look back at, at our founding, that ultimately two of the major pillars of, of our constitutional democracy are voting and education. The idea being that it had to be intelligent voting. Otherwise, uh, this system they had devised wouldn't work. And if you look at what today we see the attacks on voting and education, it seems to me as being. An attempt to splinter two of the fundamental principles of our democracy, and splinter them such that what we are doing is replacing a system in which the common good is found through through all of us in a collective process and comple- a collective education system, and replacing that type of system with one in which market forces and wealth will set the political agenda, right? So it is splintering a democracy which has foundations to produce common good and, and I think moving towards another that that is more about markets and, and wealth.
2: Derek argues that the efforts to roll back democracy and privatized schools are especially intense in places where voters of color hold increasing sway.
4: Maybe there's just a fear of too much democracy going on. If you fear democracy, then you fear public education, and you fear the right to vote. And so those are two things that, that have, have to be stopped. You got. You might go one step further and say, well, does everyone fear too much democracy? Is that that all of America? I think we can narrow that. You begin to look at where these pieces of legislation occur. Um, what you see is that the fear of democracy exists where there are more people of color. And I think that the best example of seeing those forces come together, both sort of race, history, education, and voting is in North Carolina following the last recession where uh, low-income students became the majority in public schools. Uh, President Obama had won uh, twice in that state. And the new legislature issued what was, what what Reverend Barber called a war on poor people. And that meant two big things, gerrymandering by race the the voting districts to suppress African-American votes, making it harder for African-Americans to vote And cutting education and expanding privatization as much as any other state in the nation during that time. So uh, unfortunately, this is a story of maybe wealth, race, education and voting all coming together in a a perfect, uh, perfect storm.
2: What we're seeing now is actually an old story, because voting and education have been connected since the nation's founding, imperfect though it was. And the inverse is true as well. Attacks on public education have always been part of an effort to undermine democracy.
4: I think what we have to understand was there is a vision, right, of voting and education being linked and part of democracy. And if you look across the arc of American history, what you will see is that each time that access to voting expanded, so did access to education and vice versa, right? And so if you look in the aftermath of the Civil War, in the immediate aftermath, right, there's two enormous phenomenon that extend primarily to African Americans who had been legally barred, but also to poor whites in the South. And it was the case that they said, look, if democracy is going to work in this place that's had a bunch of oligarchs running the system, we have to have public schools, and we have to have more access to, to the ballot. And, and if we're going to have access to the ballot, we can't have people who aren't educated. right? We see that happen there. By the same token, when the, the so-called redeemers come into power uh, at the end of Reconstruction, they say, we don't want democracy, so what must we do? Now, everyone knows the story of, of segregation generally, and they know voting generally, but they don't always appreciate how closely linked those two things were, right? That uh, African-Americans actually believe that if as long as the public school doors were open, they would still get access to the ballot, right? And so part, of, because literacy testing said we can't overcome, right? And so part of the agenda was to to restrict education access to stop African-Americans from, from being able to overcome. Fast forward to Brown versus the Board of Education, where does Uh, the NAACP-LDF began in trying to reopen the democracy that had been closed. they start with public schools and then they move to the voter rights. And so at least at those uh, three or four major points in history, what we see is that those two things, voting uh, and access to education, have, have never been separate. And so that's why in my book, I sort of emphasize that you have to understand that an attack on public education has always been Right? A central part of the attack on democracy itself. So it's not like they're just going after teachers or public education budgets for its own sake. It is part of a larger agenda, as Jennifer was, was referencing
5: earlier.
2: Now, of course, Derek wasn't the only historian on hand. Our own Jack Schneider also makes the case that there's a reason that efforts to undermine democracy and dismantle public education have so often gone hand in hand
5: my answer to this would be very similar to Derek's, except I would emphasize the piece about denying education in equal education to those who you would like to deny equal membership to, right? That those two things really do go hand in hand. So, you know, the positive version of this story is that if you want a democratic republic, you need to have public education, right? It can't be left to chance, that people need to be prepared to play an equal role in our society. But of course, education does this other thing. It raises people's expectations. It gives them a greater sense of themselves and their possibilities, right? It reaffirms the dignity and value of their lives. So if what you want is to curtail democracy, then you need to curtail education. And we can see that there's a logic here. Right. The logic is that educated people will not only be prepared to participate as equal citizens in society, but they'll also demand equal membership. And so this is one of the things that concerns us so much today is, you know, we are, of course, all advocates of public education. And so we would be outraged by these efforts to dismantle public education, even if that's all they were about. But, of course, they're about something much bigger than that. It's about limiting opportunities and it's about limiting equal membership in our society. And as Derek alluded to earlier, it's often because people of color are making demands for equal membership. It's because economically marginalized people are making demands for equal membership. So these things have always gone hand in hand and they continue to go hand in hand.
6: are textbooks that frame the the entire American story around uh, a positive light about how people were mistreated, right? Like they they they, they frame. Westward expansion in the context of people needing more room for slaves and, Mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, ignoring the fact that what slavery was and how it stayed and, and what it did to generations and ignoring the, you know, the slaughtering of, you know, Native Americans and everything else that's gone into this. And when we start politicizing facts, and this has been kind of, this has been kind of the case of, uh, what 's happened in politics over the last several years um, mm-hmm. is it, it it becomes you know people start using these terms like well that 's you know we don 't want anti american education <laughs> and we, we you know we want American education we want to we don 't want to make our kids hate our country um, but there's there, there's so many things that are that you know those are gaslighting terms to say that right. that teaching facts is anti American and, and to okay. understand, you know, the the fact that this country was founded on bloodshed. And it was, um, you know, there, there's a lot of great stuff. I'm not, I you know, I, I love reading about the how this country was formed and, and the ideas that filled into it. But I can do that and understand the negative <laughs> aspects of this country um, without becoming anti-American, hating democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in terms for you, when you're having these conversations, do you feel or do you sense or do you listen or do you hear the fact that, that we're, I feel like we're in a term war, you know, they, they, <laughs> yeah. they were well, on the left there. They, it's always been the left has always been kind of like the, they always say like the left is like the Orwellian side, you know, there is the double speak it's the changing of terms. But I feel like this is, this is just something that is infusing the attack on education is just the manipulation of what terms actually mean. Do you see that?
7: Absolutely. Uh, when someone, when it came up in, in Texas, you guys are in a world of hurt down there with the legislation that I'm, I've am i been seeing coming through. I mean, even to, to talking about taking away Martin Luther King Jr. from the curriculum, which is uh, wild because as far as like a sanitized civil rights leader, what we've done to him is pretty sanitary. And I, to take that away is just crazy. Um, but, you know, there's a quote by uh, James Baldwin and he talks about the fact that Uh, I love America, which is why I reserve the right to criticize her. And that's how I feel too. And um, when I told you I graduated without any knowledge and I went to college and I I learned this stuff, I didn't, I never once thought I hate America. Like I never, that never occurred to me. What occurred to me is I don't know half the crap that's happened. And like, I feel like I need to know that to be a good citizen and your um, listeners, may probably don't know that I'm white, but I am very white. Um, and I teach in a very white area. 98% of my students are white. I've taught in this fashion. I have never had a child say, I'm embarrassed to be white. And you hear conservatives say that. You'll hear, um, and let's just talk about that for just a minute. This isn't new. Um, this has come around many times. And because I do teach American Lit, maybe we can all think back to the crucible, and the Crucible was, w- when you remember it, you think, oh, it was about the Salem Witch Trials. It was not. It was about um, the Red Scare during the 1950s. It was Arthur Miller talking about what it was like to live through this time, you know, as politicians, as teachers, as professors, as people just living their life, um, being attacked and being called communist. And um, that's what the play was about. So we, this isn't new. This comes up all the time. You can go back to the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and you will see people saying that teachers are un-American or, um, you know, indoctrinating children. Well, that word indoctrination is hilarious because if you think that any of us can indoctrinate a child, you have absolutely never been in a classroom with 30 kids ever. It doesn't happen. Um, and then the CRT movement is strange because when it happened here in Missouri, I called um, one of the lawmakers who was sponsoring the bill. His legislative his legislative aide answered, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm a teacher. This is not happening." He says it is happening, um, and kept referring to critical race theory. And I said, "Hey, can you? What is critical race theory? Because I don't even know what you're talking about." And he didn't know, and he asked me to Google it. And I was like, "You wrote a bill." And you don't know what it is. And I'm a teacher who teaches social justice and I don't know what it is. So how could this be going on? Um, and so then a light sort of clicks on. You're like, this isn't about CRT. And then um, you start looking at what they're actually talking about. They get parents and folks riled up about something that isn't happening. And then the the talk starts moving towards um. You know scholarships for private schools, um, charter schools, and then you have people outright just saying that this movement is really about privatization. And um, I think that your listeners and everyone who has heard this argument really needs to understand um, that this is a grift. It's folks looking to privatize schools, and they're using this um, this boogeyman CRT. Uh, to get people to turn their head while they pick their pocket. Um, If you look at the people who are showing up to schools, they're very organized. It's not grassroots. Um, There's a group in Missouri called Missouri Prosper, and they are backed by lots of money um, that some we can trace, some we cannot, but it's not a parent group. They're showing up to local board of education meetings and having, you know, just drop down fits, and they're not even local folks. And so I think everyone really needs to open their eyes and understand it's not about CRT. It's about privatization.
0: Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com slash
8: support. If you ask a parent, do you want to support public schools, or do you want more choice? the last polling we've seen, 80 to 20 split. They want to support public schools. So the key is, and that's the campaign. It's a campaign for common sense solutions. It's a campaign to make every public school place where parents want to send their kids, educators want to work and kids thrive. And what we know from all of our lived experience and from the teachers and the bus drivers and the school staff, is that if we do these four things, expand community schools so we have wraparound services and extended learning opportunities and schools become hubs of community, expand them. Have 25,000 of them instead of 2,500 of them right now. The second is let's make learning fun. Let's make sure that kids enjoy it, work with their hands, do teamwork, do experiential learning. And in the places we do that, like in Career Tech Ed, we have a 94% graduation rate and 74% of kids go to college. Then let's actually deal with issues like, you know, making sure we recruit and retain enough teachers and a diversified teaching course. And the last thing is, as they're trying to divide, we gotta deepen the relationship between parents and educators and let's work on that. So what I've tried to come up with based upon everything I see in America right now, in schools right now, and what I see in terms of research and common sense is how we're going to overcome the mental health crisis and how we're going to overcome learning loss. And more importantly, how we actually help kids, kids and their families be prepared for life, career, college, and citizenship. So I'm trying to say, this is not ideological. And frankly, no one on the right has attacked the four strategies that I pushed forward this week because they're unimpeachable. So let's do them at scale. Let's actually break through this ideological logjam and focus on kids and families.
9: Everything that you laid out, Randy, it makes sense. I have long said, I don't understand why schools can't be the community hubs. I don't understand why we can't bring the resources that communities need and put them in our public schools, whether it be doctor's visits and regular dental visits and all of these things that families actually need in order to thrive, have them be at their public school. But then we look at and we see news like what has come out this week as well which is around the former Secretary of Education under Donald Trump, Betsy DeVos, we find that their whole desire is around the expansion of private schools, the destruction of public schools as a way to privatize and monetize education to create, in my humble opinion, I won't put words in your mouth, a permanent underclass working class and create A caste system without calling it that in America. Can you speak to the latest news of a Betsy DeVos backed group deciding now to support the campaign of the Republican running in Chicago for mayor? Yes, I can.
8: And Danielle, think about what Betsy DeVos is all about. Mm -hmm. He's not about helping all kids learn. No. Whatever the end result is, from Jefferson to Franklin to King, There is a sense in America that the reason we have universal public schooling is that we believe in all of our children. And DeVos was the first Secretary of Education who, even though that was her sworn duty, refused to do that. So, what they're about is they are about basically vouchers and privatization. And one of her acolytes, Christopher Rufo put it bluntly last year, and I quote him to get to universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. So this wow. is what the does. This is what she does. They start public schools of the funds they need to succeed. They then criticize them for their shortcomings. They erode the trust in public schools by stoking fear and division. And then they replaced public schools with private religious online and home schools. So the point here is that once she was giving this money to Vallis, you and Vallis accepted it, then you, that's all you need to know about Paul Vallis. Mm. that this is not about a guy who's running to help everyone in Chicago. This is about someone Who wants to balkanize and atomize? And frankly, that's been his history. Ask anybody who worked with him in New Orleans or who worked with him in Chicago or who worked with him in Philly. It was all about division, division, division. And frankly, that's how he's running right now a fear campaign in Chicago, creating this kind of division now paid for by people like. The richest former people who lived in Illinois, people like Ricketts, people like Rauner, who now are all in Florida. They're all funding Dallas's campaign and people like Betsy DeVos. So she's not happy with trying to have undermined education in Michigan. She's one of the least popular people, by the way, in Michigan. She's not happy with trying to sidle up to DeSantis and undermine public schools in Florida. They just passed $4 billion of vouchers. What do you think that's wow. going to do for schools in, in Florida? She wants to now try to undermine the opportunity of every single child in Chicago. And Paul Vallis, instead of rejecting that money, took that money.
10: Teachers unions are among the fiercest critics of charter schools, and that should come as no surprise. Charters mostly hire non-union teachers, and they take funding from unionized district schools. What is surprising is that the very idea of charter schools began in part with the union leader. Al Shanker was the longtime radical head of the American Federation of Teachers, and in 1988 he was maybe the most important champion of the charter idea. In fact, he was the first person to use the words charter schools in a national newspaper. So what changed? To understand that, we have to go back to the 1980s, when a panic was spreading about the state of American education. A 1983 report called A Nation at Risk argued that America itself was being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity.
11: Look at the record. Federal spending on education soared eightfold in the last 20 years, rising much faster than inflation. But during the same period, scholastic aptitude test scores went down, down, and down. The classroom should be an
10: President Ronald Reagan blamed the professional bureaucracy of education, and in part, Al Schenker did too. For decades, as a teacher and activist, he had complained about the burden of bureaucratic interference.
12: That word professional is becoming to be more and more of a dirty word for teachers. It is a word with which the administrator, use, which the administrator uses when he turns around anything which he doesn't like that the teacher is doing, he says, you are not being professional.
13: Be good. Be obedient.
10: But Reagan wanted to fix things with privatization, school vouchers, school prayer, even dismantling the Federal Department of Education. Schenker had a different vision. he just returned from a trip to Germany, where he visited an experimental school run by teachers. They wrote the curriculum, they chose their own roles and their own students, and test scores went up.
11: I think he was prompted by the idea that teachers who had lots of great ideas didn't necessarily have the opportunity to implement them. And so he wanted to provide a vehicle for teachers to be able to experiment.
10: Shanker imagined hundreds, even thousands, of these small learning communities spread throughout the country. And to name them, he borrowed from an obscure school administrator and professor named Ray Buddy, education by charter. Shanker liked the phrase. He thought it evoked explorers out to discover new worlds. So he used it and the phrase made its first appearance in print in one of Shanker's weekly pieces in the New York Times. Charter schools. But already there was a problem. From the beginning, it wasn't clear just how charters were supposed to work. Were they partners or competitors, woven into the fabric of public education, or just paid for by public funds? Shanker promoted charters as safe spaces for educational innovation inside the existing system, and very definitely unionized. But even Shanker could see that charters would also compete with the traditional model. And many in the business world focused on that competition as a way to disrupt the enormous bureaucracy of education. And that split made its way into law from the very beginning, like the 1993 bill that introduced charter schools to Massachusetts. Half of that bill says that new schools will allow teachers to experiment, the other half says they'll enforce competition and accountability. As states began to pass their own ed reform laws, Shanker watched as that competitive view of charter schools won out. In the end, he walked away from his own idea. By 1993, he dismissed charter schools as a mechanical gimmick. And that was the beginning of the fight that continues today.
1: From uh, those earliest moments, though, where the expansion of multiracial democracy spread into this idea that all children, poor children, black children, the children of slaves, that the state uh, had a responsibility to collect taxes and make education possible for them, that should be a, a triumphant kind of moment, a triumphant kind of story where we are, as a as a nation, really living. I think the ideals that we have and the rhetoric that we express in the Constitution and elsewhere about who we are. And yet, as I researched that moment, what became clear was the same forces that I was identifying in the twenty. 24- First century, the uh, philanthropists and businesses and corporations crafted an education specifically for poor white people that looked nothing like the the education that was for, for poor black people. Um, poor black people, uh, newly freed black people, were uh, supposed to be tra- uh, trained in the trades. They were supposed to be taught vocational kinds of skills. There was none of the, let your mind soar, become an artist, become a, it was, can you make bricks? Um, Let's teach you how to farm with technical specificity. And that uh, this kind of education depended on segregation. It depended on having Black people and poor people and Indigenous people live in areas of the country or in places where it was just them. And then the prescriptions for what you do and what you teach them and how you pay for it were very similar, but something different entirely was happening for wealthy people and white people. And so that's a really long way of coming around to say it became clear at every decade that i looked at from 1877 at the end of the reconstruction period up through 2015 which then was the present that i was that i was writing in that there had never been a deep disruption of segregation as a fundamental and key feature of education for certain folks and as a money making and business and marketing opportunity for a whole other group of people. And that was something that I hadn't seen before. I hadn't seen anybody talk about. I didn't, I didn't think about segregation as part of a business plan, as an uh, educational ideology that You know, these business plans for companies, which at the time, you know, was things like Teach for America and the rise of charter schools. And uh, I hadn't thought about how much money they were making and how dependent they were on poverty and the segregation of of racial and uh, economic poverty of people who were poor and or black or indigenous They had to be those things in order for them to make money, in order for these businesses to make money. They were failed business plans in the absence of segregation. So I honestly just started to wonder, is it that the reason that we have this intractable problem, this thing that we keep saying we're trying to solve, we keep coming up with, with ways to deal with, you know, how racially specific educational achievement is, um, and educational access But is part of the reason it's so hard to solve is there's simply too much money to be made in having people be segregated and offering to educate them outside of the public education system that many people pay a lot of money in taxes to keep going.
14: just want to make sure to, uh, that everyone understands why that is a sort of a wealth transfer right because basically the, the public is giving parents money right they're giving them a voucher in well i, I don't know how, how much that is per kid it probably it, it, it depends on where you are probably right what, what are we talking about in sort in, in terms of like monetary value that you that you get there as a parent
2: So we're, we're already venturing into the weeds here because some, like some states treat this as just what you described. This is like a straight up voucher, which is, you know, this, that's a vision that dates back to Milton Friedman. Yes. But the real dream right now is what's called an education savings account. That's the idea that some percentage of the, of what your state spends to educate kids um, or, you know, and, and what's been interesting about watching this latest round unfold is that these, these, uh, we're talking about a lot of money. Right. Um, but here's a key. It's never enough money to pay for the full private school tuition. And so this actually serves another nifty purpose, which is to start to get parents to think about K-12 the way they think about college. That you're going to get some assistance, but it's not going to be enough. And so you're going to pick up the rest of the tab yourself. And so this is another, another way that these programs benefit the more affluent because the original recipients of of vouchers under, say, the Milwaukee plan or the DC Opportunity Scholarships, the you know the understanding was that they were too poor to afford private school tuition on their own.
14: So in practice, this is subsidizing uh, sort of people who are mostly already sending their kids to private schools and now all of a sudden they basically get a subsidy from the state right that this is what's actually happening
2: here right that's that's exactly what's happening and so we as as little oversight as there is for these programs we do have that data so we can see that in in Arizona it's something like 80% of the people who are claiming their new universal voucher never had kids who attended public school. In in New Hampshire, it's like 75%. So what gets complicated about this is that states have figured out very creative ways to subsidize parents, private school tuition. And this is because, you know, we used to have this thing called the separation between church and state. And I know we're going to get to that a little bit later on. But in order to get around that, there were a number of states that would basically use tax credits so that so that wealthy individuals and corporations could donate to what they called a scholarship fund. And so in those cases, you're literally seeing states rewrite their tax codes in order to benefit the most wealthy residents. And so that's why these, you know, I think people would be really at a time when people are so conscious of inequality, I wish they would pay a little more attention to what's happening on the school privatization front. So
14: this could be read superficially, right? Um, The way we've, talked about the wealth distribution upwards kind of uh, uh, dimension of this. You could read this superficially as all the culture war stuff. That's just a distraction. They don't really mean that. It's actually just, this is just wealthy people trying to figure out ways not to share their wealth. It's about the money, it's plutocracy, that sort of thing. But that's probably not an adequate understanding, uh, an adequate way to understand what's going on here because you already sort of tied it into that broader sort of uh, attempt to roll back the post-1960s civil rights um, order, right? And and there, right, that is not just about the money. It's not just about, it it is absolutely also about wealth distribution upwards, right? Um, But I think we need to be, we need to make sure that it's not an either or, right? It's it is about the money, but it is also about these sort of social and cultural issues, because again, undermining public education serves both causes. I think that is sort of where, uh, if 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 you so from the perspective of the right, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? It's either about the money or about the sort of culture war stuff. It's both. That's the beauty of this, right? Public education is from the rights perspective, it's sort of a threat to traditional hierarchies of wealth. That's where the sort of resource redistribution comes in. But it's also a threat to traditional hierarchies of race and gender and religion, right? Because again, it it can be potentially uh, empowering sort of through civics education. And then people start asking questions about sort of the traditional status quo. And they are aggressively opposed to any attempt at sort of leveling hierarchies, right? Of race, gender, religion, but also wealth. And again, that's why that's the quote unquote beauty of this the game that they're playing. They get both is, is that a f- sort of fair way to sort of think about this kind of stuff?
2: So with that you're spot on. And, and really, you know, we need to think about who is in this particular coalition and, and what are their goals. And so one big part of this coalition is the libertarian right for whom the effort to privatize schools goes back to you know to Milton Friedman and and so they saw an enormous opportunity first with the pandemic we mentioned at the end of our book that you know like Within minutes after schools shut down, the Heritage Foundation came out with this kind of faux official report um, instructing states to immediately begin restructuring their their school funding systems so that money would go directly to parents. They would fund students, not systems. And so basically they had all of these right wing libertarian ideas on the shelf. Um, and they saw the pandemic as an opportunity to begin to, to get states to enact those. But then an even bigger opportunity came along, and that was the culture war. And so they have really leaned in hard to, to culture war stuff. And that's where, like, they, like, I don't think that, that a lot of the sort of old heritage, school choice, true believers, Really, you know, like believe, like they're typing these ridiculous reports about, um, about how you woke in schools, and um, there, I think that it is very cynical. Um, but then you have the kind of illiberal right, which is happy to be in coalition with the libertarians, even though, as I often point out, if you visit, say, Orban's Hungary. There is no school choice in Hungary because your real authoritarian move is to drive your program through the, the state-controlled schools.
15: In my book, uh, Slaying Goliath, I refer to Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and all these tech titans and Wall Street and on and on as disruptors. They have lots of ideas about how to reinvent and reimagine American education. It always involves privatization. It always attacks public control and democratic control of schools. And it very frequently involves technology because what they're interested in is cutting the cost of education. And the most expensive aspect of public education is teachers. And also, from a different point of view... The most important part of education is teachers, because I think that we've learned during this pandemic that sitting in front of a screen is not the same as being in a classroom with a human being.
12: Yeah. Well, this reform that, as you note, was always about privatization, and folks will know standardized tests, teaching to tests, evaluating teachers in schools based on those tests. It was also or has been marketed as being in particular, good for, for poor kids and for black and brown kids and saving them from what we're always told were failing schools. But you can see something appealing about standardization. It seems to say, well, you can't keep this black kid out or you can't keep this poor kid out because a 95 on the test is a 95 on the test. But it doesn't work that way. It hasn't worked that way.
15: No, it hasn't worked. It's actually been a, a, a tremendous failure. The effort to standardize people always fails because we're all very different. We all have different things we're interested in, different abilities to be cultivated, different passions, and a good teacher knows how to bring out the best in all kids. A machine is simply a machine, and I don't think if you look back over the past decade where these so-called reformers have been promoting standardized testing and using tests for everything to evaluate teachers uh, having common core standards where everybody in the country is allegedly learning the same thing at the same minute. We haven't seen any change whatsoever if we look at test scores. The scores have been flat on the only measures we have that are outside the manipulation of politicians, and that is we have a national test called the NAEP, National Assessment of Educational Progress. The scores on the NAEP, since we've had Common Core, and since we've been trying to standardize everybody and everything, have been completely flat. So we've managed to standardize flatness and mediocrity, and it's been a disaster. We've also seen, and I think this may be one of the most troubling aspects of this era, a dramatic decline in the number of people wanting to become teachers. The enrollments in teacher education programs, whether they're graduate programs or professional programs, even undergraduate programs, has simply collapsed and many institutions have lost a third to 40 percent or even more of their prospective students. And this is because we've been through an era of saying that education can be standardized and turned into a mechanical thing and that teachers are test proctors rather than teachers. Teachers want to see the faces of the children. They want to see that they're having an impact. They want to be able to encourage children face-to-face. They want to speak to those kids who need extra help and give them that extra help. And unfortunately, computers can't do that. This is the great irony of Bill Gates. He's got more money than almost anyone in the world. He can do whatever he wants to do and there are no consequences and there's no accountability for his failures. And he's, from what I gather, I'm not in the public health field. I hear that he's done good things in public health. He has done horrible things in education. Everything he has undertaken in education has been intrusive. It's been a failure. It's discouraged teachers. It's actually hurt the kids that he intends to help. It's done nothing to improve the lot of very poor kids. And it's advanced the narrative of privatization. You have to understand that for 20 years and more, really since 1983 when Reagan was president, there has been this narrative that our public schools are failing and something dramatic needs to happen, throw something at the wall. Well, I frequently ask people, if our public schools are failing, how do we get to be the the most powerful nation in the world? But the war in the public schools continues, only now it's considered reinvention. It's called reform, but there's nothing reform about it. It's simply disruption.
13: With the advent, with the introduction of high-stakes testing, right? Family dynamics are being colonized even more to the point where I am now as a parent becoming the homework police, right? I have to monitor these homework assignments that my children are bringing home that are totally mindless and all about test prep, right? Not only that, I get letters from the school every now and then telling me to make sure that my child gets a good night's sleep because he has a test in the morning. Or make sure that you feed your child a good breakfast. There's a test coming up, as if I don't already do those things. Right? Now, Gabor Mate, who's a brilliant medical doctor in Canada, looks at the effects of post-industrial capitalism and family dynamics. And he concludes that Even the brain chemistry of children is changing because no longer do we have a situation where we have parents in the home that are non-stressed, emotionally attuned, ready to connect with children. Even when we are present, we are really not present. Our brains are scattered. We're not connecting with them on the level that we should, right? About three million children in this country are on ADHD medication. Right? About heav- half a million children in this country are on very heavy antipsychotic drugs. Right? A new report shows us that nearly half of American adolescents can actually be classified for some type of mental disorder. Now think about that. On top of that, the situation for students of color particularly immigrant students, are more horrific because schools are, are deculturalizing institutions. As Angela Valenzuela has pointed out, schools practice what is called subtractive schooling, right? They erase the native language that students bring from wherever they're coming from. And so not, not only do you have a situation where kids are not able to connect with adults causing all types of behavioral issues. You have a situation where the very vehicle that would cause you to connect to adults, the language is being erased. So you have the older generation speaking one language and kids uh, very often uh, not responding, right? Not being able to speak. What does high-stakes testing have to do with racism? Well, first of all, high-stakes testing... Is certainly about racism because of uh you have to look at its history its history, right? Its history will connect it to racism and the effects that it's having in the world is also connected to racism. So let, let's begin with history. High stakes testing came about in the early nineteen hundreds out of a movement called eugenics. Now, eugenics, back in the day, 1900s, was a science. It was considered a science. You know, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A lot of eugenicists did their work out of Madison. It was considered a science back in the day. Lewis Terman, the very first educational psychologist, was a eugenicist. Right? And he was the first advocate of high-stakes testing in schools. Tests that are not sort of culturally congruent with many groups. Etta Hollingworth was the founder of what's called gifted and talented education. She was a eugenicist, right? And the majority of students today in gifted and talented education are not students of color. They're going to be middle class, upper middle class, white students. It's a class issue as well. That's one history, the history of eugenics. In 1955, Milton Friedman wrote a book called Capitalism and Freedom. And in that book, he tried to argue that what we need to do with public schools is totally privatize them. We don't need public schools. We need to privatize them. Right? Now, that call came about right about the time that civil rights act- activists, right, A little, not too far off, civil rights activists began to argue that schools need to address racial inequality. Right. And it was during that time that folks began to see the connection between high stakes testing and the further drive of educational privatization, right? We can use these test scores to really privatize the entire system. Not only that, we can use these test scores, right, to, to dispossess people so as to benefit others. That's the history of high stakes testing. Now, some of you all might say, well, that's the history, that's in the past, in the present, now. Well, you know, to that I would argue, you know, how many of you would try to understand what is going on currently between the United States and Cuba, right, without looking back in history to take a look at those policy formations way back? You can't understand it. Just like you cannot understand anything in education today, without historicizing it, without looking at the history, without looking at the roots of where these things come from.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Have You Heard in the first two clips, addressing the long history of white philanthropists not doing a great job of fixing the problems with segregated schools and the ties between education and democracy. Teach Me Teacher described critical race theory as the new red scare being used as a smokescreen for privatization. The New Abnormal explained how culture war issues are used to push privatization. WBUR told the history and origin of charter schools. The Human Restoration Project highlighted how the privatization of schools has always been a business model that depends on continued poverty. Is This Democracy explained that voucher programs redistribute wealth upward? Counterspin spoke with Diane Ravitch about those who disrupt public education only to make things worse, and Dr. Ricardo Rosa, in his TEDx talk, explained why it's important to understand the history of the problems we have with our education system. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Vice News giving a glimpse into the world of homeschooling and its strong ties with the conservative movement and Republican Party. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you.
4: Just a quick thank you for the valuable Rowling episode. The Witch Hunt podcast left me oddly confused with a creeping feeling Rowling is enjoying being at the heart of controversy and playing all sides. But with the podcast spread so widely across so many weeks I couldn't get my head around what was going on. In one episode, you cleared it all up for me and more, while explaining why the Witch Hunt was a very odd and disturbing listen. Many many thanks, a really valuable edition of Best of the Left.
12: Hi Jay. Thanks for the great podcast. Regarding puberty blockers, my daughter had a rough start in life. She had to spend quite some time in hospital. When she was 5 years old it was clear that her growth was still lagging behind considerably due to the things that she had needed hospital care for. So she was put on growth hormones. With tremendous success, part of the growth hormone treatment is a monitoring for signs of puberty. This is because the growth hormone treatment has the paradoxical side effect of shortening the time span of the total growth and cut short the growth cycle. So when the first signs of puberty manifest themselves, puberty blockers are applied alongside the growth hormone. This is a very common procedure, there is nothing experimental about it. The puberty blockers were applied for two and a half years, which is kind of average, or expected, or usual, whichever way you want to put it. After that, puberty was allowed to set in and she has developed into a wonderful young woman of normal height. Nothing about this treatment was experimental. It's all mapped out, with stats and guidelines and cutoff points. The children's endocrinologist applies this treatment to a number of children every year. I hope this information helps some people understand that puberty blockers are not mysterious at all. It's a well-understood treatment and it has contributed significantly to our lifetime happiness.
16: Hi Jay, this is Boris. I feel bad that my first message to you is critical while I have missed so many opportunities to shower you with praise on the dozens of great podcasts and hours of nuanced debate. I hope you see it as a sign that I care about your podcast in this topic and want to learn about my own blind spots. Anyway, here's my short and oversimplified opinion on the Nuremberg trial episode yes i get it and i agree smart famous rich white people with a huge following should be held to higher standards than representatives of oppressed minorities i agree that jk rowling is being disingenuous when she claims she is just asking questions her accusations of fascism even if they are a tit-for-tat response in an out-of-control discussion are wrong and irresponsible. Still, I think you are fighting the wrong enemy. Rowling maintains non-trans women are different from trans women and any new regulations should take into account concerns of all parties. We don't know what she really thinks but these statements are not particularly extreme and not an existential threat. I live in a country, Belgium, with one of the oldest pro-LGBTQ traditions and strongest legal protections. Her opinions would be considered mainstream here and not cause any uproar even if she had some public function. I would dare to say her statements are considered moderate, at worst, anywhere but some parts of post-2020 urban US. It also seems the podcast does some of the things you accuse Rowling of. The selection of speakers was polarizing and the show's title was shocking and deliberately framing. You accuse her of focusing on the statistically insignificant problem of violence by trans women on children while their oppression is ignored. I agree that is unfair, but, at the same time, you do not seem to respond to Rowling's concern of domestic violence or online harassment against women in general in this podcast, which are certainly huge problems. On the whole, I missed empathy towards someone that was a victim of both and has cognitive biases like everyone. I am shocked at the viciousness of the debate. There's no room for discussion. You're either a Nazi or a pedophile when their worldview is not radically different. Or am I missing something? I have always enjoyed the show and your thoughtful, unconventional viewpoints and learned a lot about, for instance, institutional racism, which is rife in my country yet poorly understood. So, just like Rowling's fans, I feel somewhat betrayed. All the best and keep up the good work.
11: Hi Jay. I loved the latest episode of Best of the Left which looked at some of the arguments of the nominally feminist section of the anti-trans movement, on the specific topic of classification as the first stage of the development of genocide. I have something to contribute. A while ago, I developed a presentation designed to stimulate thought and discussion on how societies do classify people on the basis of sex in contrast to how societies should make such classification. My hope is that this presentation can help people realize that a sharp and rigid binary classification of sex on the basis of biology, or any set of objective observations, is both logically inconsistent and very harmful. In the core of the presentation, I try very hard to construct a technique to classify every person into exactly one of only two sexes, and every attempt fails either for reasons of incompleteness or inaccuracy, or both. I know that a visual slideshow like this isn't something that can be incorporated into the audio medium of podcasting in a straightforward way. But I thought best of the left listeners might be interested in using this presentation anyway, if you'd like to share it with them somehow.
0: If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send us an email to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone who wrote in in response to the recent episode on the debate between the trans rights movement and the feminists who generally oppose that movement. Regarding Daniel's presentation, I'm going to include a link to that in the notes in the voicemail section so you can find it there. In short, it demonstrates how effectively every aspect of what we think of as sex characteristics all fall into two overlapping distribution bell curves. So, rather than there being a recognizable binary, even if there's variation within each side of the binary, the fact is that on a whole variety of metrics, the distribution curve for men and the separate curve for women end up blending into each other in the middle. So, as Daniel pointed out, once you see that those two curves constantly blend into one another... It becomes basically inescapable that trying to impose a strict binary on something that clearly isn't is simply illogical. And then lastly, I wanted to reply to Boris, who felt a bit betrayed by that episode. I found this criticism very interesting. Basically, he just wishes that I did a different episode on a different thesis. I wanted to do a show about creeping fascism, and he wanted more focus uh, spent addressing the concerns of anti-trans feminists. And I don't mean to speculate too wildly here, but I actually wonder if Boris's experience of living in Belgium, where he says they have a very long and strong history of LGBTQ protections, has actually made it easier for him to brush off the concern of creeping fascism to me coming from the US and a Trumpified Republican Party context. His response sounded a bit blase, you know, brushing off the dangers of fascism, sort of like saying, like, yeah, you know, they're not great, but how are you going to make the trains run on time? Right. Um, Like, it's a legitimate question, but frankly, it's not the concern I think is the most urgent right now. But if you're coming from a context like Belgium and and the fear of fascism is so far from your mind that you might think, like, yeah, come on, let's let's get on to the next set of questions and. Depending on your context, that might be perfectly legitimate. That's just not the context a lot of people around the world are coming from. And something I said over and over again while making that episode was that it would be great if I could cover everything and do it well, but that's just not possible. So I stuck with my thesis and didn't let myself stray into too many side notes, of which there are many legitimate angles to cover, right? I mean, this topic is deep and wide and broad, and there are lots of things that Uh, We could talk about Boris clearly wished that I had gone into more of those, but I, I would just encourage anyone who had similar thoughts to reorient your perspective a bit and take the episode for what it was meant to be rather than all of the things it didn't address. Because, of course, there were a ton of things that it didn't address, but I think that I tried to make a very specific point and worked extremely hard to do it well for me right now. I wanted to analyze the theoretical debate and political reality of authoritarianism as it relates to the trans community and the absolutely fascinating phenomenon of, of the sort of bizarre world effect that was described again and again in the show. So that's what I did. Maybe some other time I will dive into the weeds of legitimate questions that need to be ironed out about trans rights. But to be honest, it's more likely that we will get around to that after the threat of fascism has subsided a bit. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or a text message to our number 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Lewindi for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player and you can join the discussion on our discord community there's a link to join in the show notes so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington DC my name is Jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com